Okay, welcome to the Apricot Jam podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I, it's nice to be here. <laughs> I found out, I, I just listened to your interview with uh, Lindsay Way. Oh, okay. And I, I realized that you don't do an introduction, so. Nope. There no, we go. We don't thank usually, you. but thank you. We, thank you. But it's always our... good uh, if you want to introduce yourself. Because... Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, sure. Um, hi, my name is Robert Coons. Um, I don't know, I wear, I'm a man of many hats, and so I'm not really sure where this is going. So um, I do uh, a bit of Taoism, I do a bit of tea, I do a bit of martial arts, I do a bit of... Chinese medicine stuff. Uh, so, you know, let's uh, take a hint from good old Alan Watts and go with the flow. Yeah, man. I found out about your translation work, or at least some of it, through Wes Tasker um, and a conversation that he and I had, and he was just so appreciative of the work that you're doing with the immortality study. And I checked it out, and I also am greatly appreciative of that work it's been super helpful in my own practice and inquiry so first of all thank you for that and i just finished a cup of the delicious tea that you recently sent um which was fantastic it was the winter sprout so cool i wonder. well i'm i'm glad to hear this is how we met i really like wes wes is uh is excellent and uh, it's great that, that, the that the introduction came through him. Um, yeah, immortality study is something that if we get a chance, I'd love to talk a little bit about that uh, tradition today. Um, and then as far as the tea, I'm glad you liked it. Uh, for, for the benefit of the listeners, I've been importing tea from Taiwan and mainland China for since about 2013. And... Uh, I used to own, I've owned a couple of different companies. My first company was called the Tea Kings. It was, um, you know, I, do you guys have Dairy Queen in the States? Yeah. yeah. So Tea Kings is sort of our answer, was me and my friend TJ's answer to uh, to Dairy Queen. Nice. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and it didn't go the way that I wanted it to. He's pretty tall and, and, and built like a, like a bean pod. And I'm pretty short and a little bit more uh, voluptuous. And uh, and uh, so I was hoping that we could go with a Mario and Luigi themed tea shop, yes. but he was very averse to the idea. I actually, I think I saw his Hun, his, uh, his Yang Sol actually jump out of his body and <laughs> pull it back into him with some good sencha. So, but our first company, we won uh, first place in the in the baked and aged oolong category. In the North American Tea Championship, wow! And and then he went off and uh, he did some other stuff. He he started making soap, mm. and uh, then I opened a company called Chayo Tea, which was online, and uh, we had a little shop in Burlington, Ontario, which is not Burlington, Vermont. I, I had many people contact me, being like, "Oh, Burlington has a new uh, tea shop. That's great." No, it's the other Burlington, um, and uh, that was cool. And I won I won an award. Uh, there too in the same category. Um, but then uh, we ended up being a bubble tea shop. And I no, I don't hate bubble tea, but like it's not healthy and it doesn't make you feel like you're doing really well on your karma score when you're serving it to people. <laughs> um, 
And so uh, we closed up shop, me, me and my wife, and we moved to Toronto and went to Chinese medicine school. Mm. And so I just came out the other end of acupuncture school. And uh, I've just decided to get back into tea. And uh, so I've decided only to go with maybe one or two farms. It's all organic. Uh, I want to do it the right way and uh, not, uh, you know, there's enough, there's enough pollution tea on the market. So I want to be one of that small handful of people who doesn't do pollution tea. That sounds great. It's awesome. And I mean, like, I really, as someone who is a longtime tea geek, but who has been on a little bit of a hiatus from tea geekery, uh, this is just exceptional oolong. Like, all three of the oolongs that you sent are incredibly fragrant and delicious and just have like really potent um chachi so it's it's great and if anybody likes tea you should contact our friend robert coons here and we'll, we'll send information slash put information Plug about in that the show notes. yeah right at the start of the show there we yeah, go absolutely. shameless yeah <laughs> so I, I have a question about that story which is that you mentioned tea competitions which um can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, in, in Asia, um, there's lots of tea competitions. There's, there's tea competitions at the local level, the, uh, the national level, even the international level. And uh, usually, though, what you end up with is one farm will have a competition maybe every season to see who's making the best tea on the mountain. So the tea that I sourced was from a farm... Uh, the, the same year had won uh, their, their local competition. And then um, what happened was uh, when we first opened the Tea Kings, um, TJ, my, my business partner at the time, was uh, he's really good at Japanese tea. Like he was, uh, he lived in on a bunch of tea estates and helped them to do, uh, he, was, he was studying business. And he helped them to set up uh, a, an internship for international students to come and study uh, tea agriculture in exchange for doing, uh, you know, commercial stuff and then work for them. And uh, so we had, I think that uh, it's too bad that it, it died before it really got off the ground because it would have been, you know, the most bad bootiest. Yeah, I don't know if I can swear on here or not, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I, I see your head shaking and I see you saying yes. So, <laughs> okay. um, so it would have been really amazing because he, he was so good at Japanese tea. He, he brought in um, actually like, like a matcha grinder, which is basically built from two giant stones. And, and uh, he, he even put a motor on the thing to automate it. So we used to go to tea festivals with this matcha grinder with the motor on it and actually grind people fresh matcha on the spot at the tea festivals, which is, I've, I've seen it in North America before. It's not that common. Um, so anyway, we thought the year that we opened it, we ought to do something to, to try to, you know, formally enter into the scene. And uh, there was, I had this tea guanyin from, from Taiwan, from, uh, from Muja, right? Uh, Muja is, uh, is a neighborhood. It's it's an area in in Taiwan, and the mountain is called Maokong. Maokong um, literally means like empty cat, but it's it's a, a large valley in a mountain that was created by a by a meteor blast, like you know, 
50 or 60, I don't, I don't know how, how many tens or hundreds of thousands of years ago. It's been a while. And uh, so uh, it just happens to be that I got really lucky um, to meet that particular family. Their, their farm is called uh, Zishan Tea Farms. And uh, what had happened was I had gone up to Mao Kong to, to wander around and look for farms. I didn't find anything, but what I found was a staircase. And so I just kept walking downstairs. You know, you take a gondola up to the top. Uh, but I just kept walking downstairs. And then I got to this house and it said that there was tea there. And it was pretty empty looking. So I started walking up and dogs started barking at me. And I was a little concerned, but it turned out they were like, they were like pugs. And uh, then this uh, this old lady with a cane kind of shooed the dogs away and was like, oh, come on in, you know, strange foreign friend. And uh, I went in and uh, so she introduced the, the, the teas to me and um, she kept using the word MO, which I think meant motor, modus operandi. She said, you know, in Chinese, like our tea farms, MO is blah, blah, blah. I really like that, uh, you know, creative use of language. Anyway, so... I got hooked up and then later I met her son who runs the business end of things and we agreed to do some international shipping. So I took tea back with me and I gave it to TJ and he had another one of those like when leaving his body experiences, but it seemed like more productive that time. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he said, my dude, like there is a tea competition and you should put this in. I bet it could, you know, at least take second place. So we put it in, and it wasn't even the most expensive tea from the farm either. And uh, so, you know, a couple months later, we got a big freaking glass, uh, oblong, uh, inverted triangle-shaped uh, first prize in the mail. Um, and I have uh, I have two of those now. I have one that's an oblong triangle and one that's a square. So... <laughs> nice. So... Um, that, that was really cool, and it really served as a boon for us when we were doing our business originally. But the way that um, the North American Tea Championship worked was that originally it was like four North American tea vendors. Mm. And so, you know, if you were in the States or Canada or conceivably Mexico, um, you could send your tea in. And, and it was in, uh, I think it was in Nevada that it was, the, the, the thing was held in. And some of our buddies in the industry had already won some categories in past years, like Elise Peterson, um, who runs, uh, oh man, it's been a while. Anyway, she runs a, a really great tea company that deals directly with farms. Uh, she'd won the Sencha category a couple years before. And so we figured this was probably possible. But what's happened since then is that the North American Tea Championship has become the World Tea Championship. So they've really... Like, you know, nobody does it like Americans, you know what I mean? Like, you guys are good. You, you know how to, you know how to hype stuff. And so they became the World Tea Championships. And uh, what happened as a result is that now you've got farmers sending their best stuff in directly from Asia. So uh, I, I decided to uh, not participate in that anymore because there's no, there's no way. <laughs> but anyway, it was fun while it lasted. That sounds epic. It felt epic at the time. You know, it's crazy though. Like as you continue to develop and you have you have little victories and you have little losses and you have big victories and big losses, you start to realize that they are all just like bookmarks in this long uh, 
strange story. It sounds like a Grateful Dead song. Reminds me of uh, one of Musashi's precepts, which is distinguished between gain and loss and worldly matters, right? It's like so often we decide that something that has happened is terrible or awesome when in point of fact, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, it, but you know, you have you have your uh, you have your experiences and, and, and the stories and uh, my, my teacher put it to me the best because I went to study um, I went to study Sado for a little while in Japan and uh, I told my teacher and he said, oh, that's so nice, you know, later on in life, you can look back on it and that'll be a, a beautiful memory. So you had mentioned in the beginning that you wanted to talk about the immortality study and those traditions. And I, I would invite you to jump right into that because I think it's fascinating work and a fascinating lineage. And, you know, as I said, I'm really enjoying appreciating and both learning in terms of like a deeper historical and intellectual understanding, but also learning practical, um, you know, practical approaches that I can employ in my own internal cultivation practice, um, both in terms of seated meditation and also some of the work that I do in standing practices too, you know, in, in Shinyi and Bagua. So, you know, there's definitely, we have a pretty broad audience, but we definitely have a bunch of Chinese medicine and internal martial arts geeks as part of that audience. And I think that um, certainly for those folks and, you know, for other folks too, that are just generally interested in philosophy and spirituality. I think this is a really interesting area of inquiry. Yeah, I was going to say, are you guys both TCM guys? Well, we're Chinese medicine, but I don't know if I can say TCM at this yeah. point. <laughs> that's okay. You know, I understand what you mean. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's great. Uh, so yeah, uh, immortality study. This is an interesting, this is an interesting subject because, you know, I don't belong here. Um, I uh, I studied um, so my main teacher's name is uh, Hai Yang, or Yang Hai. He likes to call. I think he's called Hai Yang now. And uh, he um, he was part of the Beijing Taoism scene in the in the eighties and a bit in the nineties before he moved to Canada. And uh, he studied mainly with um, Cao Zhenyang. The, the abbot of the White Cloud Temple at, at that time. Um, and uh, he knew Hu Haya, who was, the, who was the representative of the immortality study. But um, technically, if we were to say that we were, you know, part of any lineage, it would just be lay, lay, lay disciples of, of Longmen, of, the, of Dragon Gate. Um, but, you know, what, what a lay disciple is versus what a, uh, ordained disciple is a totally different thing, and uh, and and Mr. Yang uh, certainly has uh, developed uh, a very interesting direction for Taoist studies. Uh, I don't want to talk about it too much because he hasn't he hasn't divulged all the information publicly yet, or even uh, probably not even to me. So I'll I'll wait for him to explain his system. But um, in terms of how I came to be doing this immortality study thing. Uh, it was because I wrote this book about internal alchemy called internal elixir cultivation, the nature of Taoist meditation. And uh, the first major review of the book uh, 
this guy, I, I don't remember who he was, but he had a real bee in his bonnet for some reason. And he wanted to associate us with uh, immortality study, I think because they're like the secular school of Taoism. And so uh, he did that. And then later, um, our mutual friend, Josh Painter, uh, said on, on the Purple Cloud podcast that that I was part of that school or, or part of something like that. And I decided, you know what? Uh, I think that the... I think there's a certain amount of destiny pulling me in this direction. And uh, and I ought to talk about it because Chen Yingning, the, the founder of Immortality Study, is a really uh, important figure in modern Taoism. So I think that's maybe a good place to start is what is it uh, and who was Chen Yingning? Um, so Immortality Study in Chinese is called Xian Shui. Xian means, like we say immortal, but Xian is a combination of the characters Ren, which means person, and Shan, which means mountain. So, uh, like a mountain man. But the, the reason why uh, we equate this with immortals uh, is that in ancient times, so if you look at all the way back to the Boring States period when Zhuangzi wrote the Nanhua Jing, um, he talks about these people who went up to the mountains to, to practice um, arts of nourishing life. And uh, those people later got called Xian, right? Mountain mountain people, because th the belief was that uh, within society you could only practice to a certain level, and to go to the to the end of the practice you had to actually go into solitude in the mountains. Um, I've always there's always been a part of me that wonders if that isn't just where Taoists go to die. But anyway, uh, I will reserve any speculation about that. Other than that, um, and so. You have this idea of these people who cultivate themselves in the mountains and, and become enlightened. And uh, there's a bunch of different interpretations of that that come from different parts of Chinese history. So during the Han Dynasty, uh, well, let's go before the Han Dynasty because we almost never talk about this. So the Shanghai Jing, the, the classic of uh, the uh, mountains and the sea, uh, is pre-Taoist. And it talks about a place called Bu Zhiguo, the country of people who do not die. So this is the first literary reference to, to immortals in, in the Chinese uh, tradition. Later in the Han Dynasty, uh, you have this concept of the immortal as a person who physically transcends. And so they, uh, because of their, their good works and because of their self-cultivation, they fly away uh, either on a cloud or on the back of a dragon or you know, in a number of different ways. And, and they ascend. Uh, even one one Taoist family ascended together in a house from the top of the mountain, apparently. So, but then later, Taoists started to die in front of people. And I guess that they just didn't manage to crawl off to the mountains in time. And so, that's a that's a problem. How do you explain that? One of the one of the Tianshu sect people, um, the Heavenly Teacher sect people, one of the early ones, uh, actually died in front of everybody. And so they said, oh, it was because he didn't practice. But, you know, in reality, people die. People have, we have an expiry date. We have a body. Uh, it doesn't last forever. And so later people started to think, well, you know, maybe this idea of, of immortal, it's still a pretty, pretty cool idea. Like, it still has a lot of merit. So maybe we can explain it differently and it will still be able to keep some, a lot of value. So 
during the Tang Dynasty, Lu Dongbin came along, and you know, um, I feel like every time Lu Dongbin's name is mentioned, it should be accompanied by fanfare because it's just that important. But um, he came along, and he he came up with this idea that not only are there immortals, but there's different types of immortals. So he came up with the idea of five immortals, five types of immortals, I should say, not the same as the five immortals of you know Wudang. Um, and these five types of immortals were ghost, human, earth, spirit, and celestial, or heavenly. And basically, this was used to define people who were practicing different types of meditation practice and getting to a high level. So the ghost immortal uh, basically are people who try very quickly to get their spirit to leave their body via their head. And they, um, they end up uh, being able to do it. But the problem is that they don't really build up any longevity. So they end up as a flickering image of a spirit rather than being, rather than being a robust spirit. Um, the next level is uh, human, and those are people who practice Daoyin, basically. So, you know, what we would call moving Qigong today. And those people, uh, they can achieve longevity, but the problem is that if they're not practicing, it doesn't stay. So they have to continue to practice. Uh, the next level is earth immortal. Those people are generally considered to, you know, take medicines and do uh, do things like visualization, right? In, in ancient Chinese, visualization is called cunzi, uh, containing the thought, or cunxiang, containing the image, or cunshen, containing the spirit, respectively. Um, and again, it's a similar problem to human immortal. Uh, also, the earth immortal and human immortal, they don't get rid of their karma. Right? They're stuck in the ways of society. And then the spiritual immortal is somebody who practices Nadan or internal alchemy. And they go to a high level and they change the qi to spirit completely and you know achieve achieve pure yang, which is the goal of Taoism. But then the highest level is the celestial or the heavenly immortal. And they uh, they completely leave behind the the corporeal. And so that was how how people started to think about it in, in the tongue. Then by the time that, um, you know, much later, closer to the modern era, people started to phrase immortality in terms that were more similar to Buddhism, where they would say, well, you know, an immortal is really a liberated human being. And, and that's, that's how we want to see it now. So it's an, an idea that's gone through a lot of changes. And so by the 20th century, when Chen Yingning came along, Chen Yingning was originally uh, a Confucian mastermind. He... Uh, he, he studied all the Confucian stuff and he did the national exams at the age of 13 and passed them. And uh, then he uh, then he got sick because, you know, imagine how hard you have to work to do that. And so when he got sick, he started studying Taoism with, with all kinds of different masters in, in the mountains. And he uh, spent three years and read the entire uh, Zhengtong era Taoist uh, canon. Um, and from that time, then he started to get this idea that there were some problems with the Taoism of his era. And, you know, that's, it's an interesting question because during Chen Yingning straddled the end of the Qing dynasty all the way to the middle of the Cultural Revolution. So that his life was during a very tumultuous time. Um, I mean, try to tell me there's no not tumultuous times. But anyway, um, so he... Uh, was after the reformation of, of Longmen, 
by quite a few years. You know, he was born uh, well after the Reformation of Longman. And so, you know, it's possible perhaps in the early 20th century, things were starting to degrade a bit. This is something that happens in Taoism. Taoism has, has a life cycle. And so, you know, Taoist schools of various types, they, they're generated and they're really powerful and really strong and get a lot of stuff done. But then they kind of get weighed down and they end up, you know, being full of all kinds of detritus and, you know, greedy people come along and take advantage of it. And it, it ruins kingdoms and does all kinds of stuff. Taoism is a really interesting tradition. Um, but basically he figured, you know, the essence of Taoism is really in what happens when we practice internal alchemy. And so he, he dedicated his entire life to researching internal alchemy and, and promoting it. So he called his school Xian Shui, Immortality Study. And he, uh, he published a, a newspaper called, uh, I think it was called Xian Shui Yubao, the, the Immortality Study newspaper. And uh, it was published in Shanghai for, for quite a few years during the Republic of China. Uh, he had a couple of disciples. His, his most famous one is Hu Haiya, who uh, lived till 2016. He lived to be 101 years old, so that's not bad. Um, but Chen Yingning, uh, after the revolution, he, was, um, he helped to found the uh, China Taoist Association. Uh, he also served as the second president of the China Taoist Association. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, in 1969, his life was cut short at 89 years um, when he was uh, executed during the Cultural Re Revolution, because he was a, unlike many Taoists, was a very, very political person. And he basically viewed uh, Taoist practice as a way to, to strengthen the people of China and you know save them from all this foreign oppression that had been happening, which was a very true reality during his life. He was he was alive for all of that. With you know uh, being born right at the end of the Opium Wars, and then you can imagine. Uh, he had a couple of hot takes about politics. But by the time the Cultural Revolution came along, you know, you can think about it like this. Liu Guizhen, I think, had already been sent to prison for practicing Qigong by the time that Chen Yingning was executed. So um, there, the, the, you know, angry youth, as they call them, uh, I think Fenching literally translated as excited youth, but they were pretty, uh, they were pretty against spiritual practice. And so... Uh, the common saying is that Chen died of uh, uh, lung illness in hospital, but that's not true. Uh, he was taken out and shot. Um, and so uh, that's, that's kind of where immortality study comes from. And, you know, the person who carried it on was Hu Haiya. Uh, Hu Haiya lived till 2016. He's got a student alive today who I think his name is Wu Guozhir. But uh, Mr. Wu is not promoting Xian Shui, he's promoting Chinese medicine. Mm. So uh, my belief is that basically, aside from people who study it and are interested in it and, you know, maybe met either Hu or met Chen, um, there's not a lineage. And this is one of the things, actually, that I've, I've tried to mention uh, as often as I can get away with, which is that the Nadan school, the internal alchemy school, really doesn't have a lineage system in the same way as, as um, the martial arts. And this is one of the uh, issues in, in the Western discourse that I wish would go away, which is that we get a lot of people making claims about special Nadan lineages, but it, it's not a thing. 
Um, it's just a bunch of different schools of thought. And then, you know, you're either an ordained Taoist or you're a secular person. And, um, you know, you learn what you learn and you practice what you practice. So, Robert, <clears throat> if you would talk a little bit about you, you, you noted the distinction between an ordained Taoist and a secular practitioner and that they're quite different. Um, how would you describe those differences broadly? Yeah, sure. So, um, Taoism, this is just, this is just my opinion. Um, it's it's based on research. Uh, so it's not a, it's not a fanciful opinion, but it's nonetheless, um, you know, there, there's going to be divergent understanding of this and, um, I'm, I'm happy for that to be the case, but, uh, Basically, Taoism as a school of thought, uh, in my belief, is that it didn't start out as a religion. I think that Taoism started out as a philosophical movement um, during the Warring States. It can be equated with Ruism, so the, the school of uh, Confucius. When you think about what a Ruist was, um, Ru, Ru is Rusher, right? Ru means uh, like... Um, philosophy like confucian philosophy and sure means a, a basically a retired military officer and so these people who were doing philosophy during the warring states period they were retired military officers and retired government officials who were going around from state to state um sort of peddling their wares of statecraft you can think of it as uh you know pre-machiavelli uh you know people who were intimate with government structure in these in these uh this model of many, many states, um, and basically talking to the governments about how to regulate their countries. And so Confucianism came along and it said to people, uh, you know, actually what's more important than what the emperor does is what people do, because what people do defines the, the nature of a, of a nation. And so you could have a bad emperor, but if you have good people, it can still be a good country. Um, and Taoism uh, came along at some point and seems like a, it seems like a response to, to Ruism. But at the same time, it's maybe not as harsh as, as, as a lot of Western scholars have made it out to be. I think it's more of a, a friendly response in kind, answering some problems that Ruism maybe created. But uh, it's, not, it's not entirely divergent from it either. But, you know... Uh, what happened at some point is that Lao Tzu, right, the legendary author of the Tao Te Ching, Li, Li, his Chinese name is Li Er. We don't know if he existed or not. He might have existed. He might just be a bunch of people put together as one person, like the Yellow Emperor. But in any event, he uh, he was venerated as a deity uh, posthumously. And being venerated as a deity, you know, you had this tradition uh, during the Warring States, during other eras where important cultural figures would be deified. And so Liar got deified in, during the Han Dynasty, and his cult was very popular. And when the Han Dynasty began to start to crumble, um, a couple of different people, so um, Zhang Daoling uh, specifically, came out and said that he had a vision of, of Lao Tzu appearing to him and telling him to set up a state in Sichuan. So he took a bunch of people to Sichuan and created this theocratic state that was based on Taoist government philosophy. Uh, you know, Taoism originally, right, it comes from something similar to Ruism. It's government philosophy. And then uh, 
Zhang Ling took these people to Sichuan and created a state that tried to be Taoist and ran it for a few generations until Cao Cao rode in on his horse and told them how it was going to be. Um, but so then um, what happened, though, is that Taoism caught on as a, as a religion. Um, Zhang Zhui's variation of Taoism got cut short because the, the Taipings uh, ended up all getting killed off. But Zhang Ling's Taoism, because they peacefully accorded to Cao Cao, they were given the status of the national religion. And so that's really where Taoism uh, as a religion comes from. They, they got the strength to become the national religion of China. And so other people in later generations, like, like Lady Wei, um, when they created Taoist schools, they were these, um, you know, they were like the technocrat class of, of their society. And uh, Taoism at, at one point in history was, was basically uh, a religion and a practice of the nobility. Um, then later, you know, it's developed. But now when we say, uh, you know, secular versus ordained Taoist, we have to take all of this stuff into account because there have been plenty of Taoist philosophical movements throughout Chinese history. There was uh, Wang Bi and Guo Xiang, who commented on the Tao Te Ching and, uh, and Nan Hua Jing, is a philosophical school. The Chongxuan movement could be broadly seen as a, as a philosophical school. Um, there have been other ones too. Neo-Confucianism, it's not Taoism, but it deals with Taoist subjects, right? It's also a philosophical school. I'm not a big fan of the idea that there's no such thing as philosophy in China because you have to explain the hundred schools of thought, you have to explain Neo-Confucianism. There's been plenty of different philosophical schools. Whether or not they use the word Zhuoshui, which is the modern Chinese word for philosophy, um, they use the word Daoshui, right? You can look back to the history of the Han Dynasty written during the Sui. Uh, they talk about Daoshui as a genre separate from the Taoist religion. It's a very uh, well understood thing historically. Um, so I, I always get a little bit irate uh, at that cadre who absolutely demand that there's no such thing as Taoist philosophy. But today in modern times, what we have is there, there's three popular ways of learning Taoism. So there's philosophical Taoism, which is basically a modern invention that uses modern philosophical interpretation of the Tao Te Ching. It's not the same as the old ones. You know, it's, it, it comes from the universities, um, it's, it's hybridized, it, it has its own benefits. We have a Western version, there's a Chinese version, um, you know, and there's also a Japanese version, there's probably a Korean version. I'm, I'm totally ignorant of anything that's happening in Korea, so I won't comment on that. But basically, that's probably the most popular version of Taoism. Then there's the Complete Reality Sect, which is uh, a religious movement where they do have like followers, but really complete reality is in terms of getting the teachings, you, you have to be ordained to get any kind of real teachings out of them. Uh, and not only that, but it's rigorous. Um, and then there's uh, Zheng Yi, which is basically these days, I think more or less a hodgepodge of like Taoist schools that are within the community. So when I say community, I mean like families and uh, uh, you know, these these schools where people where the Taoist priests are allowed to have families basically uh, is, is approximately what Zheng Yi is, and then they have their own unique teachings because they all focus on different texts. And, and then of course there's Wudang, right? Wudang is, is special. Um, but so that's kind of what's out there these days. Um, when we talk about 
a secular Taoist, then I think that usually uh, 90% of the time, a person who would call themselves a secular Taoist probably means that part of their teaching comes from the Dragon Gate sect. This is, this is the majority of what, because people who are philosophical, philosophically inclined in Taoism will tend to call themselves philosophical Taoists. They don't want anything to do with the religion because they have reservations about the religion, whether, whether it's a, whether it's a post Mao thing or whether it's a, you know, a materialism thing, uh, they don't like the Taoist religion. So when we say secular Taoist, usually what, what we mean is people who are associated with long men. The reason why we're associated with long men is because historically long men has been the most generous about teaching people who were not ordained. Um, but what it usually means we practice, that's the, that's the real question. So what it usually means is we practice Neda. Um, and the reason for that is because there were a number of long men masters who were very generous about teaching Neda to the community. Uh, Cao Zhenyang was one of them in, in the 80s. So that's where my knowledge base comes from, mostly. Um, but there have been other people too. And there have been people who were, um, you know, sort of peripheral to, to long men, like Chen Yingding and like Wang Mu, who, uh, who also taught Neidan in the community. So typically, that would be what we mean when we say a secular Taoist is a, is a Neidan practitioner. Um, when we talk about an ordained Taoist, I mean, you guys have talked to Josh already. Josh is my hero, by the way. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure I've ever sung the, do you ever know that you're my hero? But <laughs> I will someday when, when we meet in person. He's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, he's yeah. But, you know, it's, it's people who take vows and they, they do the religious thing. And uh, they're, they're, they're wonderful. Um, they're really great. But uh, it's, it's a specific thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, does that, that more or less answer the question? I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you end up originally getting interested in Nadon? Because in the West, that is definitely not. I mean, how old are you? I am pushing 40. Right. So, I mean, you've, if I'm tracking this right, since your late teens, early 20s, you've been actively inquiring into internal alchemy practice, which is like, it's just not the kind of thing that most 20 year olds get into. So I imagine <laughs> that there's a story here and I would like to hear it if you're willing to tell well, it. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, um, when I was, uh, when I was in my late teens, I was bad. And, uh, I think we've all been bad in our late teens though. And I'm not going to get into it because it could cause me border crossing issues. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um, you guys just have a really strict border, but, um, Anyway, so uh, I did get stopped at the border once because I had these giant um, earrings that were like spirals made of wood. And uh, the border guard, uh, he didn't like it. So he pulled me into a little room and he was like, have you ever been arrested? And I was like, well, I don't have a criminal record. (laughs) (laughs) Well played, sir. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, that wasn't the question. (laughs) But Um, that's the answer. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I did get across. I was going to see Peter Ralston. I don't know if you guys. Oh, sure. Yeah. I actually was going studied to, uh, with retreat. him once. Yeah. I haven't been out there in a while. But um, so what, what happened was that after my bad years, 
I, uh, I had to figure out something to do because I was not in good shape. And I've seen a lot of stuff, man. Uh, I saw a lot of stuff in my late teens in, in Toronto. You would think Toronto is a very peaceful city. It's not. It's, it's a crazy place. You just have to be in the right or wrong places. And so I was uh, pretty shaken up. And it just turned out that um, my mom has been a lifelong Tai Chi and Qigong practitioner. And she practiced all the way back when she was pregnant with my little sister. Uh, this would have been, you know, 36 or 37 years ago. And uh, she's been really into it. My dad's been really into Tai Chi and, and karate. And uh, I, I used to do karate as a teen. Um, and so it was kind of like a refuge where I could go and I could sort myself out. And as it turned out, the way that I'd been a bad boy during my teens had caused me to get uh, a little unhinged mentally. Uh, you know, a lot of voices in my head telling me scary stuff. Mm. Um, and uh, I found that Qigong practice, it just happened to be that the teacher who showed out to Michelle McMillan in, in Guelph there, uh, it turned out that she's like a really serious Buddhist practitioner. And so she did Qigong with an emphasis on attaining really profound quietude. And later I realized that what she was able to do was bring people into what's called the Hunyuan state, so the, the sort of original original primordial state of, of nature. Uh, she never bothered explaining it to the students, though, which is unfortunate because they didn't appreciate it. But um, so I experienced that kind of state, which is very peripheral to Nadan, really, really early on when I was about 20. And... Uh, it made me forget the demons that were telling me horrific things. Um, and so I kept practicing, uh, but I got interested in the internal martial arts because my dad had a copy of uh, BK Francis's Power of the Internal Arts lying around. Um, and so I read that and I had some buddies who were into Mantak Chia. And unfortunately, one of my buddies was so into Mantak Chia that he started carrying around uh, various different, you know, heavy metals trying to do alchemy. And he ended up poisoning himself and being uh, half dead for about three years. But that wasn't me. That was that was a buddy of mine. And I, I, I knew it wasn't going to work when I heard him talking about it. Uh, I had another buddy who was carrying around a little chunk of Iridium 77, apparently, in his pocket. Um, just, Wait, man, are, where are, I come are, from is it. Are there How suggestions? You... Is Montak Chia suggesting that people carry around these... I don't, I don't think so, but I think that he read Mantak Chia and, and got, uh, you know, I should walk back the Iridium 77 statement. I heard him <laughs> say that in a rap. So, so uh, yeah, so, so I should walk that back because I don't know for sure that that's true. But they were into that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they were, and they were doing all the, like, you know, sucking up your scrotum mm -hmm. with your head kind mm -hmm. of stuff, which is, which mm -hmm. is a gross misrepresentation of anything related to Taoism. Um, and uh, so I started looking around for various teachers of the internal arts, and I really wanted to study Badwa, which is what every nerd in their 20s wants to do. Um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and eventually uh, I found uh, Yang Hai uh, in Montreal. I, I lived in, in Guelph, which is a little satellite of Toronto. And Montreal's not super far away. It's certainly not as far away as Peter Ralston's place in Texas. And uh, I went out to visit Yang Hai uh, in 2005, would have been when I met him. 
and I was trying to meditate and I was meeting some like insight, insight meditation people and stuff, but it hadn't really clicked. Um, tai Chi and Qigong was really what I was, what I was doing at the time. Studied Bagua with him and I studied Qigong with him. And I always, I knew that he was into Taoism and I'd always try to get him to talk about it, but he was always avoiding the subject. And, uh, a few years went by like that, and finally around 2010, I think. Well, it might have been 2009. It was before I went to China, which was, I think, in 2010 or 2011. And uh, finally, he said, okay, I'll talk to you a bit about Taoism. So he taught me uh, Cole's Notes History of Taoism and uh, taught me a specific technique out of uh, Sun Sun Yao's uh, Golden Cabinet, which was... Uh, visualization technique where you you bring a purple cloud through the top of your head through your body to, to your feet and then i went off to china and uh i learned a tea ceremony with uh with this taiwanese person named uh Ho Tai Tong, who uh unfortunately is no longer with us she passed away in 2020 but she was a fantastic tea teacher and as it turned out uh she was part of this group um, related to Zhou Yu, who is the founder of modern Taiwanese tea ceremony. One of the founders. There were a couple of different people. But Zhou Yu owns the uh, Wisteria Tea House in, in Taipei, which was not only where modern Taiwanese tea ceremony was really born, it's also where the Taiwanese uh, dem democracy movement really got its feet under it. So pretty special place. And uh, Zhou Yu has an interesting take on things because he says that drinking tea can open your doom meridian and then higher at higher level of practice, it can open your chomri and allow and allow the uh, the shen actually to to leave through the top of the head, the same as neda. So I was practicing this sort of Taoist qigong type techniques that Yang Hai had taught me while doing tea ceremony, and I at that time completely opened my doom meridian. Hold on, so you were yeah. um, doing those two things like in parallel? You were doing them same the, time, same time. But I'm saying they were. I do this practice and I do this practice, or I'm doing these practices literally at the same time and place and moment. Both. Okay, cool. Just to so, clarify. Yeah. So um, what would happen is I would usually like drink tea and, and use that as a way to focus myself mm -hmm. and then sit and meditate. But then I also got to the point where I could actually use the tea. I don't want to spill out too much of the heavenly system here, guys. But anyway, I, I figured out a method of using tea to practice Nadan. And uh, which which there will be information. I'll be doing stuff related to that pretty soon. So people won't have to wait too long. But um, yeah, I managed to open my Doom Meridian and, and get the chi to go into my brain. Uh, and then I came back to, to Canada for a while and went to visit Yang Hai. And I told him what had happened. And he said, you know, it's so funny. I originally taught you just because I felt bad for you. And, you know, I didn't really think you could get it. Um, but look, it looks like you did get it. So I'll teach you more. <laughs> so he so he started to teach me actually how to read the classics. And uh, I was, I'd been going to university in Shanghai for a while studying Chinese. And so I started to really read the Tao Te Ching seriously. And I, I mean, like, it took me a year to read the whole Tao Te Ching in Chinese. And I had, I had a, one of those early sort of LG smartphones. It was before smartphones really got smart. And I had like, just, I, I absolutely filled up the phone's data, uh, not data, I used it, I filled up the phone's uh, memory with notes on the Tao Te Ching. 
um, you know, I remember I'd be sitting like with a dumpling and a chopstick in one hand and the phone in my other hand, making notes about Tao Te Ching. It took, it took a long time to read the whole book. Um, and so over time, because of that, working with Yang Hai, you know, learning from people in China and just really like being an extremist about trying to learn Taoism, I, I managed to read, I'd say I've probably read about 70% of the popular Nadan documents. Um, there's a bunch of less popular Nadan documents from, from Daozang that I still find from time to time, but you know, like all the, I've read most of the big ones and, uh, I've managed to get a pretty good understanding of the difference between each of the schools. So I would say that that's been about a 10 year project right now. Um, the reason why I was on the scene early is because in 2013, um, a, a book company called Tembuli Media opened up and they wanted somebody to write about internal alchemy. But the only guy they knew was, well, I'm not going to say it in public. There was a guy that they knew who's a wonderful person in our Taoist community and who's really like, he would have been the guy to talk to. He was like the foreigner in the 1990s studying Nadan in, in Beijing. Uh, there were a few, but, you know, he's like the most active one. And they went to him and he said, like, hell, I'm going to write that. I got promises to my teachers and I got, I don't want to be criticized by these idiots. And so they were like, well, who else can we find? And it just so happens that at the same time I had made a post on, do you guys remember um, Empty Flower or Rum Soaked Fist? It was, a, it was a message board for internal martial arts. You're just lucky that you don't remember. There are no bad places. Um, but I used to post on Rum Soaked Fist. And uh, it, I put a Nadan basics sort of essay. And, and not only that, but that person who was asked to write the book and refused originally, he came on and corrected a whole bunch of stuff too. So it wasn't a very good Nadan essay. But a buddy of mine who was friends with the, the owner of, of Tambuli, um, whose name is Mark Wiley, um, my buddy said, you know, Mark is opening this thing and he needs people to write about stuff and you should write about Nada. Why don't you write a book? And uh, I, uh, be, having a little bit of the sort of Barnum Bailey circus mentality, you know, like I, uh, I grew up in the martial arts scene around people like Wild, Wild Texas John and, you know, these other people who are, really into self-promotion. So I thought, why not, you know? And uh, so I just did it. And uh, I can say that um, it was one of the first Nadan instruction manuals on the market. I think, I don't know if Damo's book was written before or after mine, but it was really right around the same time. There wasn't that much stuff about Nadan that was instructional at that time. There was a lot of academic literature, but in terms of like what was really popular back then was Qigong and then Daoyin got popular. And, and now people are talking more about Nadan. So I feel lucky to have been one of the early people, you know, like talking about the tradition, even, even though the book is a little bit, is a little bit partial. Uh, I think it will still stand up pretty well uh, against the test of time. It's, it's, it teaches people the basics that you would need to know to be able to practice for a few years. Um, so, you know, I probably wasn't qualified, but um, life just throws stuff at you, you know, and now that I am more qualified, um, I've tried to write another book length thing, but it just hasn't, 
it hasn't really taken form because once you start to know about something intimately, you stop being able to talk about it. <laughs> you know, because you because you second guess yourself. Mm. If if you're ignorant and you're just really passionate, it's really really easy to to write a book. So how did that <clears throat> book project end up becoming the immortality study Substack? So, you know, what, what happened is that um, I started a Facebook page for, for the book because um, I basically Mark said to me, um, we're going to promote this thing, but you have to promote it, too. So I started a Facebook page for it. Um, I'm relatively literate at Facebook. I'm not that good at other social media sites, but with Facebook, I can I can basically do it, which probably says something that I don't want to think about. Um, but uh, so people started to follow it. Uh, it was one of the few, one of the few blogs that was talking about Naden. Um, now there's more and more, right? There's there's a lot more now, but uh, back then there weren't that many. And I was using that as a place to practice translation, actually. And what I was doing was I would just use, I would just translate things to the best of my ability and put them on there. And then people would come on and, you know, sometimes they'd agree, sometimes they'd disagree. And I really got a lot better at translation like that because there are people. I'm not saying I'm the only, I'm not saying that I was the only person at that time doing Nadan, but I was one of the only people writing about it in that format. And so other people like, like Josh would come along and, you know, they would say, hey, you know, um, I think you might have missed something here or there. And so I got better at it. And then uh, what happened with the Substack? was that it was uh, 2020 or, well, I think the Substack got started in 2021. It's a year old. Hey guys, it's the one year anniversary of Immortality Study. Hey, congratulations. Happy anniversary. I haven't, even, uh, <clears throat> I haven't even written an article or anything for it, but I will. Um, so anyway, uh, then 2020 came along and that was a crappy year. Um, so my... Uh, my tea teacher died in in January of 2020. She, I feel like she kind of got lucky. She's Taiwanese and, you know, she was living in Shanghai. And, and I feel like all the stuff that's happened, uh, she's just as well not to have seen it. But, but then that happened and then COVID happened and everything got shut down. As you guys know, in Canada, the, the lockdown was like, like powerful, you know, they weren't messing around. Like you had to, you had to pick your groceries up from the curbside for a while. It was pretty mental. And, uh, and so uh, I didn't really have anything to do. I was in TCM college, but, you know, I was kind of like, I should do something. So I started doing live streams on, on Facebook. And uh, I just come on and talk about a Taoist subject for an hour and then, you know, interact with the people that were watching it. And that was going okay. And then a buddy of mine, named David Clotier, who's based in Montreal. Uh, you guys, maybe you should talk to him sometime. David's interesting. He's he's an ordained Taoist, uh, and he uh, he's also like a wicked fitness guru. So really interesting guy. Um, he said to me, you know, man, like, you should teach a seminar. Like, you know, what are you doing writing all this stuff and, and not getting a group of people together? So you should teach a seminar. So he helped me to organize a seminar, and we got about... 30 people. It was four hour seminar. And I started thinking, you know, 30 people ain't bad. Like that's, that's a pretty respectable number. So maybe I should, maybe people are interested in, in Nadan. Um, and so 
from there, I started teaching a couple of classes on Zoom. So I've been teaching a Tao Te Ching group now for almost two years. Um, we're up to chapter 31. So we've been, we've been doing it pretty seriously. Um, and uh, I, I've been teaching some other Taoist manuscripts as well. Um, I've taught a bunch, uh, including uh, Yin Fu Jing and you know, various different things. Some of Wang Chongyang's work. And then- Do you, do you mean, sorry, do you mean yeah. like you're going through and actually helping to translate? Like, like yeah, so I'll translate translating? the document and then I'll teach them how to read it. Wow, cool. Yeah, yeah, that's what I do. Like this is, this is the majority of my energy goes into that. Um, I, I think that we should, reading Nadan documents is very difficult and you have to, like, it's, it's, it's all written in code. <laughs> so you have to have somebody to explain the code to you. And if you can't read it, it's, it's not worth reading it. You'll just get confused. So um, that's kind of what I've been, that's my main project. But my, my groups are pretty small and I only usually advertise each course once because I don't care if there's four people, if there's 50 people, I'm just as happy with four people. Um, Cause we get people who are totally serious, you know, and they're, uh, as you mentioned at the start, um, you know, me and Wes has had, had a, a lot of communication. It's people like that who have been doing this stuff for their whole lives, uh, and and I, I love it. But but that doesn't mean if if somebody's new, it doesn't mean they can't join. I'm just saying that you know that's what it's been so far. Um, so then uh, I found out about Substack because I'm just really interested in American politics. Like I'm always just watching the dumpster fire like, like i'm magnetically drawn to it and we've been having our own dumpster fire here i'm not saying that we're the you know i'm not one of those canadians but um i'm just magnetically drawn to it and so i started to notice that people were writing about politics on substack and then i looked at substack and i was like hey this is a place where i could set up a really respectable blog and it's 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 set up for writers so uh you know why don't i I'm not going to write a book. I've tried to write about seven. It's not going to happen. Um, the best I can do is like an ebook. Uh, and so I thought, you know, if I just write a couple articles every week, then uh, that'd be pretty cool. And the Substack has got a lot of features. So I called it Immortality Study because uh, nothing says secular Taoism better than Immortality Study. That's that's the that's basically what Chen Yingning wanted to do. He wanted to remove what he felt was superstition from Taoism. That's not how I feel. I like, I like religious Taoism. Um, I think religious Taoism is, is wonderful and I don't think it's superstitious, but Chen Yingning did. So immortality study uh, really has a feeling of, of secular Taoism. Chen Yingning's approach to research is the same one that I try to adopt, which is to read and cross-read. So read between documents rather than just staying in, within one document try to read within multiple documents and try to derive meaning because that's how Taoism works. It's a contextual tradition. So that's why I called the immortality study. And then I decided actually initially what I was doing with it was I was just writing basically anything I felt like. I was just like, yeah, I just do whatever I want here. Right. I'll translate anything I want. And, and it's, it wasn't organized, but then at some point I thought, you know, we really need, a place to talk about the Tao Te Ching in detail. Because the Tao Te Ching is such an important text, but it's always translated and it's it's annotated by some people, but the annotations are always sparse and they always lack they always lack a lot of stuff. 
it's not like the Chinese annotations. Like the Chinese annotations of the Tao Te Ching are are voluminous and powerful. And I thought, you know, um, my favorite Tao Te Ching annotation is Huang Yuanji's Tao Te Ching Chan Wei. Um, and it's, uh, it's the only annotation of the document which is based on Nadan. So I thought, hey, why don't I write a Nadan Tao Te Ching annotation uh, on Substack? And then what I'll do is I'll set it up so that I'll have two, two different parts of it. One part is going to be the public part, and the other part is going to be a part for subscribers. And originally what I was doing was writing these, like explaining the Tao Te Ching linguistically and the public part. Um, and then in the subscriber part, I was, uh, you know, doing Tao Te Ching Chan Wei translations. But what eventually happened is that I started to go more toward actually focusing on Chen Ying Ning's work within, within the subscriber part. Um, because I think it's important to get a better picture of what he did out there. It was so important to modern Taoism. Um, you know, the reason why we can practice Nadan internationally today is largely because of Chen Yingning's effort. Um, and so what I've started to do more, more recently is to uh, include more of his work and a little bit in public, a little bit in private, and continue doing the Tao Te Ching thing, um, which, uh, which is uh, up to chapter nine now. We're just getting into chapter nine starting tomorrow. So that's very exciting. And we've been at it. We've been at it for a while. I've been doing it for about, I think, doing Tao Te Ching for about six months now. So, you know, I'm trying to go through it really methodically. Um, I'm not breaking it into absolutely clear sections, but I try to take it usually like maybe nine or ten characters per, per article um, to try to really give context. There's a lot of language in the Tao Te Ching which um, has been interpreted in later generations to have, have various meanings. So what I'm trying to do is take some passages that I think we often don't give enough, uh, we don't look at from, a, a, you know, an inquiring stance enough. Like things like uh, the gate of the mystery goddess. What does that mean, right? Um, and, you know, if you look at it from a certain context, it actually, it's not mystery goddess, it's mystery womb. Right, so if you practice Nadan, it's like this idea of a mystery womb that is continuously stored and never forced. It's like uh, if you understand a little bit about Taoist meditation, that makes the mystery goddess make sense in a physical way and a spiritual way. That if you were just to read it as a philosophical text, you would never get that. You would say, "Well, mystery goddess or mystery bird," you know, like. What does it mean? It must be about yin and yang. But if you look at it from the Nadan perspective and you understand that goddess means, uh, uh, sorry, that word pian, which people usually say is goddess, actually means female livestock that is capable of breeding. And xuan means yang energy emerging from within yin energy. Then xuan pian, this mystery goddess, actually means uh, yang emerging from within yin inside of a womb. So it's like... Uh, Tao Te Ching is full of language like that. Uh, nobody has bothered to explain it in English. So time to do that. You blow my mind here. That sounds amazing. It's pretty great. You, you read some of it then? 
Uh, yeah, I've been tracking Red since Republic the Dao. Uh, no, I mean, I, I've been subscribing since right around when Robert started the Dao De Jing project is when Wes first hipped me to okay. what he was doing. And I, I just kind of dove in and have found, again, uh, not to repeat myself, but I'm going to repeat myself, that both in terms of my intellectual and historical understanding and also in terms of uh, influence on practice, it's just, it's been so incredibly nourishing and helpful. Um, so I'm super grateful, which is kind of why we're having this conversation is because I was like, oh, this work is awesome. And the man sells tea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the other thing, um, the other thing, like, here's, here's another one that should like blow your mind. I don't know if, I don't know if you know this one or not, Lucas, but have you ever thought about what, um, what the last passage from chapter one means the mystery upon mystery and the gate of all wonders oh no i mean yes but <laughs> like yeah please this, elaborate this one, uh, this one so you know of course like all of these interpretations are, anach are anachronisms and all of the nadan people interpreting the Tao Te Ching were doing it anachronistically but because they did it and nadan is a great tradition i'm going to also give myself a license to be anachronistic too um, but basically um, when when Nadan became well explained so about the third or fourth generation people started talking about this thing called uh, Xuanguan or the mystery gate and uh, basically what is Sorry, what, what's that Xuan like like yeah red, like, uh, like dark black, mm -hmm. black like Got it. yeah so Basically, what they said is that passage, right, the mystery upon mystery and the gateway of all wonders, what it, um, what it means is in meditation, when you practice, you go into this very, very deep state of, uh, of, of emptiness. And then not only that, but then you go deeper, right? So mystery and then more mystery. But the reason why, so Xuan, when Lao Tzu talk about it, right, it means it means mystery. But in historical writing, Xuan is a is sort of a color of black purple. And so it's black with a little bit of red in it. Yin and Yang, in ancient times, were not red and white. They're not black and white. They were black and red. And so Yang uh, developing within Yin uh, is what Xuan, what mystery is in Taoism. And so... When uh, the Tao Te Ching says Xuan Zhi Xuan, right, it's deeper into darkness and, and then deeper into darkness, it produces Yang energy. So the mystery gate Xuan Guan is the time when the Yang energy is mature enough to go from the deep meditation state or what we call like the pre-heaven state and then spill over into regular consciousness. So it's the time when, you know, the Qi moves strongly enough in the body that we go from a very deep meditative, almost trance-like state into a state of, of total awareness. And uh, it's in later generations of Taoism, it kind of became like the Taoist equivalent of Kensho in Zen, mm. um, where you know you have this glimpse into reality. But the, the reason why I think that that's really important is because when you look at the majority, and it doesn't matter if it's Western or Chinese, the majority of folk Nadan epistemology is based on the idea of cycling chi from the do meridian up to the top of the head and back down the ren and you're just doing that forever and there's nothing else to it but this mystery gate concept which was especially popular in the in the middle school of Taoism, it's mentioned everywhere 
it's it, but it was especially popular in the middle school um, of Nadan. It's the real deal. Like that's the real practice. The, that all the stuff about moving chi around the body is is insignificant in Chinese. You would say it's a fart, just like a pee, and it's it's not even necessary if you if you understand how to really convert pure yin into pure yang. So this stuff, it's like, man, can you imagine? Like, I mean, these are these are very very basic concepts, but it's like if you as soon as you know it and you do it, then you'll be like, oh, that's what Nadan is. Okay, I get it now. It has nothing to do with Qigong. It has nothing to do with Qigong at all. It's a completely different animal. And I've been trying to say that for years, but, you know, Qigong people will get upset. But it has nothing to do with Qigong. Nadan, Nadan is not high-level Qigong. It is a very, very specific and unique type of meditation practice so so that's why i'm doing this stuff right i i i want people to know this stuff um so i'm trying to be i'm trying to be as generous as possible without stepping on toes robert will you explain a little more because uh well i won't qualify it will you just talk a little bit more about the way that you see qigong and nadan being entirely different animals sure yeah, I love Qigong. I practice Qigong every day. So I'm not dissing Qigong at all. Um, Qigong, you know, the number of, the first thing is you have to look at Qigong from the perspective of where it came from. Um, Qigong, a Qigong system could include Nadan. So you could, Qigong is like a meta category. It's like, it's like an umbrella. And under the umbrella, there's all these different things, which it, it, uh, Nadan could kind of be part of it. But um, there's a really great... Um, Taoist guy on Facebook named, I think his name is Wang Yuanming. And he he once said, you know, like Qigong ends where Nadan starts. Mm-hmm. And I'll, so I'll try to explain it. I'll try to give you sort of as concise an explanation as possible. Um, Qigong is a modern practice. It comes from older practices. Uh, originally, self-cultivation practices in China were not systematized. And I think you'll find that the majority of Taoist and you know other types of knowledge have not been systematized in the way that Western knowledge has been systematized. They they kind of exist in a in a in a more loose and more organic, you know, natural way of being, rather than in the West where we have a tendency to categorize things into like little tiny, you know, boxes of knowledge. But in modern times, um, when Qigong became popular, which was really when Liu Beijing, when Liu Beijing healed himself and went back to the government and, and the government officials were like, hey, you were like on death's doorstep. What did your uncle do to you, right? Um, this was when Qigong really took off. And what it is basically is a combination of, you know, approximately four different types of traditional practice. So Daoyin, obviously, right, the moving component of Qigong is, is just Daoyin. Um, it's often influenced by Taiji Chuan or, or the internal arts, especially more recent styles of Qigong. Um, and then uh, Xiang, so visualization. Um, another thing is the use of the intention, right? The use of the mind. Uh, and then breathwork, like Tuna and other types of breathwork. And so these are about the four categories of Qigong. And then some schools have like Jingzuo, right? Seated meditation. Um, 
So what Qigong is trying to do is it's trying to be a self-care exercise slash intention slash breathing school of practice. And that was how it was contextualized when it was created in modern China uh, by, by CCP officials. So what they were looking at was trying to create a school that people could do that wasn't related to religion, right? Because Marxists are, you know, most of the time Marxists are atheists. And at the same time, uh, took the, the benefit of the religious practices that, that came before it. And so Qigong used to be managed by the um, the health department of the Chinese government. Uh, after the bad stuff that happened with a certain cult in the late 80s, uh, they've moved Qigong to be controlled by the athletics department of the Chinese government, which is why you have Qigong competitions now, which is which is zany. It's like a yoga competition. But What does that look like? There, there are people that, that do it. Uh, I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to knock it. I have friends who do it, so I don't want to say mean things. But huh. It is kind of zany. Um, but yeah, so, you know, if you look at, like, um, you look at the purpose of Qigong, right? It was created in an environment where it was specifically designed to be uh, physically healthy and good for mental health, but not designed to be a spiritual practice. If you look at earlier elements of Qigong, like Daoyin, Daoyin is obviously not the same as seated meditation, because you have to move your body. You look at visualization. Visualization is not the same as seated meditation. It can be done seated, but you have to use your mind. You look at moving things with the intention. Again, you use your mind. Uh, You look at things like uh, breath work. Yeah, you have to breathe when you meditate, but it's not the main event. So the difference between Nadan and Qigong is that in Nadan, you you only use the intention until you can turn it off. You only focus on the breath until you can forget the breath. And then once you have everything set up right, then you let go. So the mind is used only very sparingly, what we call timing the fire, right? It's really about timing the way that the mind and the breath work together, but then turning it down and and entering into a state of non-being. Qigong very, very rarely goes there. It will advertise itself as going there. But when we think about Jing Qi and Shen, Qigong is working on post-heaven Jing Qi and Shen. Whereas Nadan is working on both post-heaven and pre-heaven, Jingxi and Shen. Whereas Chan, right, Chan is typically uh, really focused on pre-heaven Shen. So if you want to see, like, what's the the hierarchy of sort of um, most complicated to least complicated, Qigong has the most stuff to it because it's full of all kinds of little practices. Nadan is somewhere in the middle because it's it's relatively sparse, but... It's got some, a little bit of mental work, and then Chan is the most the most sparse. Uh, it's not a quality thing. Any of them done well can be excellent. I uh, Qigong saved my life, so I'm not. Uh, I would never diss Qigong at all. But if you are trying to, um, you know, lengthen your sinews and, uh, you know, get get your muscles to relax and, and uh, you know, lower your blood pressure or raise your blood pressure or whatever. Um, Qigong is, is a, a wonderful place to be. It's a wonderful place for taking care of your joints. Uh, Nadan is designed to do things that are tangential but different. And so for Nadan, really the main goal is becoming 
enlightened and becoming liberated. Um, and uh, Qigong, again, you'll have the practitioners say that they want to become enlightened and liberated, but none of them have a clear map of how to get there. Um, the other thing that makes Nedan unique is that it's one of the only systems that has a complete map. People have been trying to do this with things that are similar to Qigong for centuries. Um, you know, the um, uh, Lingbao Bifa, right, which, uh, which, which is taught by, uh, uh, I can't remember his name, any very, very, very famous teacher. Um, Lingbao Bifa is one of these early texts that tried to put visualization and breath work and all these things. Uh, Wang, Wang, uh, can't remember. Anyway, um, trying to put visualization and breath work and intention work and all this stuff together in one place to create a to create a, a hierarchy of practices that lead to enlightenment. But Nadan is the only one that's been able to make a clear map and consistently over the generations build the map to become clearer and clearer. Um, no other school in in China does that. I don't know about the Tibetans or the Indians. I think that they have some something, you know, they do it in a different way, but. I think they have something that's a little bit more filled out. But if you look at Chan, like they'll tell you the idea of what enlightenment is and, you know, approximately how to get there. But it's not like they don't have like a point A to point Z or point Z map of how to get there. Nadan does. It's, it's completely unique in that respect. Um, and uh, it's like a recipe or it's like a bunch of different recipes, you know. But the thing is, the recipe is for Nadan. It's not for Qigong. And the Qigong recipe is for Qigong, it's not for Nedan. It's like making it's like making a baguette and making a croissant. They're different kinds of bread, and they have their own recipes, and you couldn't use a croissant recipe to make a baguette, and you couldn't make uh, use a baguette recipe to make a croissant. Awesome. So, yeah, that was going to be my question, is how, how do you see the difference between Chan and, and Nedan? So, do you... Uh, as far as I understand, Chan, uh, my knowledge only really starts when it came into China, you know. Um, do you think that it's possible that um, the progenitor to Chan in in Nepal, or what's now Nepal, is somehow like similar to Nadan, or maybe those those teachings kind of got lost or muddled, or do you know? Because I, I well, I don't know. If, like you, I can give Nadan you the Taoist is, take. Yeah, give me it. But it's not fair. <laughs> never, never is, right? That's okay. Yeah. So, so the Taoist take is that um, Chan is about practicing with Shen pretty much exclusively. and uh, Or what we would call Xing. Right? Xing means nature. Um, and so Taoism then says, well, but we're about practicing Xing and Ming, right? So Ming means um, original life energy. And uh, I, I apologize to Josh for simplifying that uh, beforehand, but uh, maybe you can have him on again to explain Xing and Ming because he doesn't. Maybe we'll job. have both you guys on. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. We can have a little, uh, I can say, sing my song to him. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. We'll really narrow our audience too. <laughs> so, so what I would say basically is, the body is this great gift that we get from 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 the Tao, and um, they were looking at Buddhists, especially Lu Dongbin, right? He said these ghosty mortal people—they're basically like Buddhists. They they forget about the value of their bodies, and so they end up, you know, they do achieve some kind of enlightenment, but it ends up being ephemeral and and not robust. Um, but you know, having said that, 
I think an interesting place to study is the Tiantai School, which is a little bit before Chan, Zhi uh, Yi, the founder of the Tiantai School. He combined a lot of Taoist practices with Buddhist concepts. And so when I study Chinese Buddhism, I'm tending to study the Tiantai School, which is based on Zhiguan meditation. So Germain stop, Guan means observe. And it's, it is more understandable for Taoist people because it's got more of our stuff in it while having a sort of uniquely Buddhist take. But one thing that I will say is that Chinese Chan, so I don't know about the Nepal, Nepal stuff. I am literally, my expertise stops at like the border of, of Guangxi. So even once you get into Yunnan, I got no idea what to do. Um, but, you know, basically uh, my personal understanding is that the high level of Chan practice and the high level of Taoist practice are identical. Um, because, you know, I think it was uh, Huai Nanqing, who I, I like Huai Nanqing a lot, uh, who said that um, Taoism and Chan can both open the sky gate, right, the, the fontanelle. That's something that, that both of them can do. So why would you use so many years to develop qi inside of the body when the Chan practice, when done correctly, will produce the same effect? Uh, I don't know if that's, that may be the Buddhist version of unfair. But I think that um, there is something to this relationship between the two practices. They're not, they're just different ways to get to the same place. It's very different than, you know, I'm not a big fan of this whole perennialism thing where all religions are exactly the same. And, you know, uh, uh, well, you know, Jesus and Mohammed were really just teaching Nadan and, you know, I do, I do kind of see similarities between Chuanjan and the Catholic Church, but you should have Michael Sasso on to talk about that. He, he, would, give, he would give you an interesting talk because um, he's, he's both an ordained Taoist and ordained Catholic. So, mm. um, but anyway, uh, you know, like, I think that for Chinese spiritual practices, uh, not, the salvation, not the Salvationist religions, obviously, but for, for Chinese Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism, their meditation practices have a lot of crossover and they learn from each other. It's like Bagua and Xingyi and Tai Chi. Mm. Always a trinity. What's up with that? <laughs> hmm. Jing Chi and Chen is also a trinity. Totally. Yeah. Would you, um, and this may be opening up a, a, a thread in this conversation that we want to put a pin in and, and pick up some other time. But So we talked about Qigong and Nadan. I'm curious... Um, do you have a take on internal martial arts practice and Nadon similarities and differences? Because some of that seemed seems to me to be similar between the Qigong Nadon, and then some of it seems like it might be in a slightly occupying a different kind of context and territory. Yeah. So um, I will briefly talk about this, but let's let's do another one in the future cool. too, because yeah, this good. is a, this is a gigantic topic. Totally. Basically, how it works is like this. If you can't give up the use of the intention, then you can't complete Nadan. Um, Nadan, more and more, I'm realizing this too. This is something for the past couple of weeks, especially. I just, I can see my mind being an asshole now. I always knew, I always knew, but I can like, I can see it now. And I don't mean, I don't mean like I can see my mind as a separate physical thing. It's just like when I practice meditation now, I know if I haven't given up my mind. 
And it's just so obvious to me that it's in there and it's being a trickster and it's messing around with me. And so I, so, you know, sometimes I'm even successful and I get it to get off my back once in a while. But um, basically with, with martial arts or Qigong, it's all the same principle, right? You're always invoking the power of the mind because the mind is what moves the body. It's what, you know, moves post heaven chi when you, put intention in a certain place. And so those practices at a high level are mental practices. And, and the internal martial arts, if you think about it, is like how good can you get your self-control to be of your body, right? Like how many, how subtle can you make your movements and how, how much can you control them sort of dictates how good you are at, at Tai Chi or Xing Yi or Bagua. Um, you can get to a level that's sort of like no mind, but it's not the same. It's it's a it's a post heaven version of no mind. One cool contribution to the qigong world that Pang Ming, so the founder of Zhenang Qigong, made, is he talked about Ho Tian Ho Tian Huan Yuan Qi, so post heaven primordial Qi. Mm. And I think that that does a great uh, job of explaining the state of no mind that happens when you're doing a concentrated activity. But it's different from Nadan. Um, Nadan ultimately seeks to integrate the pre-heaven and the post-heaven but that's like at the highest level of practice is that you can be doing stuff and still be enlightened same, same with buddhism but just being concentrated is not even if you're quiet it's not precisely the same thing um, being very concentrated is being very concentrated on the other hand when we talk about martial arts and nadan right we have the same these theories like converting jing to qi and qi to shen and shen to emptiness which we can thank Gao Yunzhang for, right, the, the founder of Gao style uh, Bagua. But the thing is that that when he and Sun Lutang used Taoist language, what they were doing was using Taoist language to explain something in the martial arts. So, and, and I think the thing that helped to serve as a Rosetta Stone for me actually was learning tea ceremony. Because tea ceremony talks about exactly the same stuff, not in precisely the same language, but, you know, Everybody knows when you drink tea, if it's good and you're focused, you can open your Doom Meridian, you know, and you can use you can use the tea to open your Ren Meridian. Um, when the first time my Inchiao Meridian really opened, it was while drinking tea. Um, you know, this this is something that can open the channels. Qigong can open the channels, right? It, it all can do this stuff because the channels are just a physical part of your body. It's just that they're they're so real <laughs> that you know. Um, once they start being active, it, you, you don't have to be, you could be practicing any kind of, you, if you're really focused when you do stamp collecting, you could open the channels. Uh, playing guitar, you could open the channels. Arhu, I played Arhu for a little while, and uh, it sounded like a cat dying, but it did open some of my channels. Um, you know, um, so in martial arts, um, they're designed, the Taiji is designed and Bagua and Xing Yi are designed according to the Chinese theory of the body, which comes from Neijing, it comes from Taoism, but it's not precisely the same thing, because, you know, putting an acupuncture needle in someone is not the same as prescribing herbs to somebody, and, you know, putting an acupuncture needle, needle in someone is not the same as doing martial arts, and meditate, meditating is not the same as doing martial arts, but don't they have a lot of connection? Because they're all based on the same theory of the body. Um, and this is one of the things that, like, at a, at a meta-analysis level, it's one of the things that I'm, I'm an activist about, 
is that I really um, am horrified at the way that the lines are blurred in the, I don't know about other languages, but in the English language discussion of the internal martial arts and, and Chinese meditation and stuff like that, and Chinese medicine, the lines are blurred where all of those three things just become a homogenous Taoism. And it's like, you know, people come up with these with these wacky theories. And those theories, if you have a big enough soapbox and you can get people to rally behind you, it just becomes true. And there's a bunch of stuff that's not true. Neigong, that whole thing about Neigong practice is is BS. Right. Neigong has nothing to do with Taoism. There's never been like when when Neigong is used in there's maybe like three documents in Taoism that use the term Neigong. It doesn't mean the practice of stretching and bending. That's Dao Yin. Neigong comes from Dao Yin. Neigong is martial arts practice. It was originally from Shaolin. It got really popular because it's a good way of stretching to do martial arts, but it has nothing to do with, with the Taoist self-cultivation system, other than that it's similar to Dao Yin. But I think if you talk to a lot of Taoists, like there's a lot of Taoists that don't like Dao Yin. Like, there's a lot, even today. But if you read Wu Zhenpian, Understanding Reality, it says straight up, bending and tiring the body and eating rainbows is will just lead to madness. So Dao Yin and visualization is, is according to the most important person in the Neda lineage, um, was, uh, you know, Zhang Boduan, right? Is uh, that stuff, that Qigong stuff is just bad. So when this thing about... Um, you know, this thing about Neigong is just viewed as truth. And then and then other people add these extra categories like Shengong. You know, in Chinese, Shengong means magical ability. It doesn't mean the practice of, of the spirit. And it's just, it's, it's Occidental people creating knowledge that has nothing to do with the real tradition. It has to do with them having students for 10 years and running out of material. And, and it's like, it's my pet peeve. I've been... I've been irate about it for years. Uh, I, I talk about it once in a while, but the problem is, you know, you don't want to turn your friends off. And, and there's a lot of people that are really invested in it. They're invested in it for reasons of belief. They're invested in it for economic reasons, you know, like, but, but I wish that, I really wish that the used car salesman trend in the internal arts would go away. I mean, I have that wish for pretty much every discipline on every level, especially in the <clears throat> marketplace of ideas, digital era, right? It's like, I mean, I'm, I have a business. I have to, on some level, do something to support and sustain that business. So um, you're saying that you don't like Ben Shapiro? I don't even know who Ben Shapiro is. Oh, okay, you're lucky. You're lucky. You're just so but, lucky. <clears throat> but what he's, I'm... He's one of these, uh, he's one of these um, pseudo... pseudo conservative philosophers i just i just thought it would be funny to take a take a run at, at somebody who's a used car salesman so yeah i, I mean <laughs> we can we can you know either run at none of them or all of them because my feelings are similar and at the same time part of me is sympathetic to the fact that like everybody is on some level trying to do the best they can to support themselves and their families and it's like we're in this moment you know where how to do that right how to get people from wherever they are to you, even if you have something that like yourself or like Lucas um, or maybe like me that actually has some level of utility and legitimacy, it's like there's 
you know, there still is some way that we have to convey that, but even in the conveying of it in the most sincere manner, there's, there's part of that that can feel a little cheap, at least to me, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, here's, here's the thing though, right? Like just tell the truth to the best of your ability. And if you make a mistake, don't be afraid to walk it back. Amen to that. That's it. You know, it's not good. It's not shameful to walk back a mistake. No, it's it's noble. It's brave to walk back mistakes. And believe me, when I started this stuff, I didn't just come out of the womb, you know, being good at researching this stuff. Okay, I made a lot of mistakes, and I took I, I got a lot of shade thrown at me, and I deserved some of it, not all of it, but I deserved some of it. And it it I, I was angry, but it inspired me to do better. And and you know, we can all. We can all do that. And I think that if we, this is something that some friends who you guys know, but I'm not going to say out loud who it is, and I have been talking about, which is like, our goal is to bombard people with information, which is as close to the source as possible. And then uh, after enough years of enough people doing it and having a movement grow around it, one day it may change the, the narrative about this stuff. And while we're doing it, we just have to do our best not to commit career suicide by doing the wrong thing. But, you know, at the same time, try to have integrity. Yeah, man. So I think that is a great place. That was a nice us, little outro. Yeah, for us to put a pin in it. <laughs> um, great. And Robert, it's been a total pleasure. We will, of course put links and various things in the show notes so people can connect either to inquire about tea or learn about immortality study or if you have other things that you want to have us put in those show notes we can do that too are there any final thoughts other than that lovely last run yeah so you know other than uh like my shameless self-promotion i i just also want to say and this is what i say at the at uh at some point during every podcast where, where I talk about Taoism is don't sleep on parting clouds. So Josh and Jack, my very, very good friends, uh, I, I encourage everybody who's interested in Taoism, in, in like uh, interested in the Taoist religion, to, to look into parting clouds. Uh, what I'm doing is awesome. If you want to study Nadan and you want to study Tao Te Ching from a Nadan perspective, come to me. I'm the only person doing it. Um, except Chinese people, obviously. So go read Chinese, don't look at me. But, um, you know, uh, if you want to learn the Taoist religion, um, I, I hugely encourage everybody to go check out Parting Clouds. And the reason is because they are a couple of guys who spent their entire lives wanting to study Taoism. And so when they got, like they knew a lot academically before they became initiated. And then after they became initiated, they are just the best facilitators and communicators and they're smart and they do good research um and so i always try to find an opportunity to to also plug them because uh i think what i do is a very it's like um it's not quite like blue cheese but it's like one of those stinky cheeses that's not maybe maybe not quite as extreme as blue cheese Telegio. Yeah, it's one of those things that nobody's heard of. Um, so <laughs> you got to be like, you know, you got to be a special kind of weird to want to do what I do, which I appreciate that some of your listeners are. So thank you. But if you want to know about Taoism, um, Josh and Jack at Parting Clouds are are just 
the best, and I can't think of anybody else that's even close to in the same league as them. So I encourage everybody also to go check them out. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. We'll do it again. Guys, most appreciated. Uh, And enjoy the tea. I will continue to enjoy the tea. (laughs) Oh, I got to tell you something. This is is crazy. Uh, So I, um, I, one of my friends got um, three kinds of tea, right? She got uh, jasmine and uh, winter sprout and osmanthus. And I've been trying to tell people the osmanthus tea this year is, is the bomb. It's mm-hmm. so good. And everybody's like, ah, osmanthus, I don't know. It's not really a, a plant that's on my uh, radar or whatever. And so my friend who, um, who's, who owns a really killer tea company, I, I can't say who it is because I don't want to like name you know what I mean? Like it would be sketchy, sure. but, um, but so she got three kinds of tea and she went and drank them and she was like, yeah, the Osmanthus one is, is the best. How the hell did the farmer do this? And, and, um, she lives in the same neighborhood. My wife works in. She's, she's like, just like pack up two more bags and send it with your wife to work. I'm coming to pick it up. And I was, I was just like, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. I'm sorry I didn't get some. Next, Next time. time. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I have a business. I have to, on some level, do something to support and sustain that business. So um, you're saying that you don't like Ben Shapiro? I don't even know who Ben Shapiro is. Oh, okay, you're lucky. You're lucky. You're just so but, lucky. But what he's, I'm... He's one of these, uh, he's one of these um, pseudo... pseudo conservative philosophers i just i just thought it would be funny to take a take a run at, at somebody who's a used car salesman so yeah i, I mean <laughs> we can we can you know either run at none yeah. of them or all of them because my feelings are similar and at the same time part of me is sympathetic to the fact that like everybody is on some level trying to do the best they can to support themselves and their families and it's like we're in this moment you know where how to do that right how to get people from wherever they are to you, even if you have something that like yourself or like Lucas, um, or maybe like me that actually has some level of utility and legitimacy. It's like, there's, you know, there still is some way that we have to convey that, but even in the conveying of it in the most sincere manner, there's, there's part of that that can feel a little cheap, at least to me, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, here's the thing though, right? Like just tell the truth to the best of your ability. And if right. you make a mistake, don't be afraid to walk it back. Amen to that. That's bro. it. You know, it's not good. It's not shameful to walk back a mistake. No. It's it's noble. It's brave to walk back mistakes. And believe me, when I started this stuff, I didn't just come out of the womb, you know, being good at researching this stuff. Okay, I made a lot of mistakes, and I took I, I got a lot of shade thrown at me, and I deserved some of it, not all of it, but I deserved some of it, and it it. I was angry, but it inspired me to do better. And, and, you know, we can all, we can all do that. And I think that if we, this is something that some friends who you guys know, but I'm not going to say out loud who it is. And I have been talking about, which is like, our goal is to bombard people with information, which is as close to the source as possible. And then, uh, after enough years of enough people doing it and having a movement grow around it, one day it may change the, the narrative about this stuff. And while we're doing it, we just have to do our best not to 
commit career suicide by doing the wrong thing. But, you know, at the same time, try to have integrity. Yeah, man. So I think that is a great place. That was a nice us, little outro. Yeah, for us to put a pin in it. <laughs> um, great. And Robert, it's been a total pleasure. We will, of course, put links and various things in the show notes so people can connect either to inquire about tea or learn about immortality study or if you have other things that you want to have us put in those show notes we can do that too are there any final thoughts other than that lovely last yeah. run yeah so you know other than uh like my shameless self-promotion i i just also want to say and this is what i say at the at uh at some point during every podcast where where i talk about Taoism, is don't sleep on parting clouds so josh and jack my very very good friends uh, i i encourage everybody who's interested in Taoism, in in like uh interested in the taoist religion to to look into parting clouds uh what i'm doing is awesome if you want to study nadan and you want to study Tao Te Ching from a nadan perspective come to me i'm the only person doing it um except chinese people obviously so go read chinese don't look at me but um you know uh if you want to learn the taoist religion um i i hugely encourage everybody to go check out parting clouds and the reason is because they are a couple of guys who spent their entire lives wanting to study taoism and so when they got like they knew a lot academically before they became initiated and then after they became initiated they are just the best facilitators and communicators and they're smart and they do good research um and so i always try to find an opportunity to to also plug them because uh i think what i do is a very it's like um it's not quite like blue cheese but it's like one of those stinky cheeses that's not maybe, maybe not quite as extreme as blue cheese Telegio. Yeah, it's one of those things that nobody's heard of. Um, so <laughs> you got to be like, you know, you got to be a special kind of weird to want to do what I do, which I appreciate that some of your listeners are. So thank you. But if you want to know about Taoism, um, Josh and Jack at Parting Clouds are are just the best, and I can't think of anybody else that's even close to in the same league as them. So I encourage everybody also to go check them out. Awesome. Thank you, sir. It's been a total pleasure. We'll do it again. Guys, most appreciated. Uh, and enjoy the tea. I will continue to enjoy the tea. <laughs>